Today we are beginning our series on Anabaptism at 500, an ambitious project that looks to create an Anabaptist Bible with notations and commentary by a diverse number of Anabaptist communities. Today is our introduction to the series, and over the next few weeks we will have time to look at specific scriptures in detail, making time in our services for individual reflection and sharing. In the email for today's service, you should find a link to the participant guide for Anabaptism at 500. This includes a short essay on pages 15 to 18 that is very helpful in understanding what this project is and why it is important to us today. Welcome to Worship Today. I'm glad you're here. Let us worship together. You may want to have your voices together available as we'll be referencing it throughout the worship today. Now listen to this call to worship from Voices Together 910. Speak to us, living God, as you have spoken to our ancestors, through the voices of your prophets, the breath of your spirit, and the life of your Son, so that we may live according to your word, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. We'll now hear Holy Spirit Come With Power, number 57. As we begin this series into Anabaptism at 500, we will dig into several scriptures as a congregation during our worship times together. The project leaders have this to say. Central to the Anabaptist movement of the 16th century was the conviction that the Bible was intended to be read and interpreted by ordinary people in the common language of the day. The movement flourished as young men and women from all walks of life began to read scripture together and hold themselves accountable to its message especially the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels. In the centuries that followed, Scripture continued to sustain Anabaptist congregations, convicting, encouraging, and transforming believers in settings all around the world, just as it did in the 16th century. 
In 2025, the Global Anabaptist Church will commemorate the 500th anniversary of Anabaptist beginnings. This occasion offers a unique opportunity to renew the movement in the 21st century by inviting readers, believers and unbelievers, young people and older people, earnest seekers and the indifferent, to engage scripture anew through the distinctive lens of the Anabaptist tradition. The Anabaptist Bible is the first attempt to create a study Bible from an Anabaptist perspective. Like the Lutheran Study Bible and the Catholic Study Bible, it will include commentary and insights from leading biblical scholars. But the Anabaptist Bible will also reflect an approach distinctive to the Anabaptist tradition by including insights, comments, and questions in the form of marginal notes generated by 500 Bible study groups of lay Anabaptist Christians. You and your faith community, us at Milwaukee Mennonite, can participate in creating the Anabaptist Bible joining hundreds of other Anabaptist Bible study groups who will collectively read and interpret every passage of Scripture, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. We can take our part in a radical tradition of ordinary people reading Scripture together, trusting that the Holy Spirit will inspire, comfort, unsettle, and transform God's people today, just as it has in the past. The project leaders also lay out some key points for how Anabaptists have historically read scripture. Number one, reading scripture as a community, including both the ancient and the contemporary, including those with formal training and those without, and centering those who have historically been marginalized. Number two, reading scripture with Jesus in the center. And number three, spirit-led interpretation and transformation. They note that different interpretations may arise when reading scripture, but when we place our values of love and grace over being right, we allow space for each other. What important perspective will you bring to our time of reading scripture together? How has your understanding of scripture changed over time? What verses have become important to you? Your voice and your thoughts will be important in our work together as a congregation. Let's pray. Dear God, Let your word shine in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Make it so bright and warm that we always find our comfort and joy in it. Amen. And now we'll hear God of the Bible, number 420.
Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 19. So now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Only to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his decrees that I am commanding you today for your own well-being. Although heaven and the heaven of heavens belong to the Lord your God, the earth with all that is in it, yet the Lord set his heart in love on your ancestors alone and chose you, their descendants after them, out of all the peoples as it is today. Circumcise, then, the foreskin of your heart, and do not be stubborn any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who is not partial and takes no bribe, who executes justice for the orphan and the widow, and who loves the strangers, providing them with food and clothing. You shall also love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Matthew 25, 31-46 When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, Then he will sit on the throne of his glory, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, You that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, You did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left hand, You that are cursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Please pray with me. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, 
our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This sermon is the third in a series that, uh, in my notes, is just called Notes on Reading the Bible. I preached the first two parts of this series in September and November of last year, and I was asked to give a part three uh, for today for the Anabaptism at 500 project. I won't recap the first two parts of this sermon series because it would probably take a lot more time than I'd like to spend doing that, but the general gist of the series so far has been that biblical literacy rates are actually quite low in American Christianity. Uh, and that's even the case amongst Bible-believing groups that claim that the Bible structures their entire life. And part of the problem uh, is that much of the meditation on Scripture in many American Christian groups uh, is not on the Bible's narrative or its contents, but on what the Bible has to say if it's going to testify to the God we believe in. And that can become really idolatrous. We can force the text of the Bible to fit our idea of God rather than allowing God to speak through the text to challenge us. So for much of this series, I've been examining the lenses that people bring to the text of Scripture and trying to argue that the Bible that we have is good, even if it doesn't always fit those lenses that you commonly find in American Christianity. Uh, in fact, in many cases, it's a good thing that the Bible doesn't fit into those lenses. The idea I'd like to focus on for this sermon is that the Bible is not really a rule book. Though the Bible is many things, depending on what part of it you're reading, it's not, overtly, it's not overly controversial to say that the lion's share of the Bible is narrative. Uh, it's mostly a story. And in the ethical life of a community, stories function very differently than rule books do. Stories can still appeal to and follow rules, uh, but saying that we live out of certain stories is very different than saying that we, certain, we follow certain rules. Stories appeal to their listeners in a different way than rules do, and they, they motivate their listeners in a, in a different way than rules do. As an aside, I had everything that I've said so far in this sermon strongly reinforced during a conference that I went to this past weekend. I went to a Christian ethics conference where there were a lot of presentations on social justice movements uh, and how the, the leaders in those movements appealed to the American public as a whole. And I was really struck by the way that leaders like Bayard Rustin, Frederick Douglass, Angelina Grimke, and other individuals who were part of the abolitionist movement or part of the civil rights movement appealed to scripture to support civil disobedience. They were citing examples of people who engaged in civil disobedience in the Bible in stories that were in Jeremiah, in Acts, in Judges, in Esther, in Exodus, in Philippians, in Revelation, throughout the biblical, all, basically all the books of the Bible. And the, the references that they made to these stories in the Bible would go over the heads of most American Christians today, um, even ones that pride themselves on biblical preaching and study. The biblical literacy level in their times went way deeper than just, here's this one verse from Romans that my church really likes to quote, even though I don't understand the context of it. 
These activists lived in the world of the biblical story in a way that's simply rare to see today in a non-superficial way. Um, and I, I would like very much for that to be the case again. Anyway, aside over, it's a good thing that the Bible is primarily a story and, and not a rule book. Um, some Christians very much want the Bible to be a rule book. Uh, just give me a few pages of rules that I need to follow and I'll be good, they think. Uh, but in truth, no list of rules, even an expansive list with more than 600 items, could be sufficient to govern the behavior of members of a religious tradition over thousands of years across a myriad of cultural situations amid differing political and social contexts and amid changing circumstances. Even a divinely authored set of rules couldn't do that. Um, and that, that, has to do, that has something to do with just the way that rules work as a, a method of moral appeal. Uh, rules are very clear as a mode of ethical appeal. At least they are if they're well-crafted. And because of their simplicity, that's the reason why we tend to use rules a lot when we're making moral appeal, appeals to large groups and uh, when we're making appeals to children. Um, when somebody says do this and don't do that, uh, that is, gives us rules to follow, uh, those are pretty clear moral appeals. We know how to put those into practice or how not to put them into practice. But rules are often highly contextual. Amongst changing political and social circumstances, it can be really difficult to tell if a rule still applies, uh, must be modified, or must be abandoned entirely in the apps if you don't, unless you have, uh, a body of people authorized to make those decisions. You know, rules need interpreters. Stories are a bit more enduring. They form an imagination in their listeners that naturally adapts to changing circumstances. They, they form an imagination that encourages hearers to apply the story in new and different contexts. Now, I don't think it's terribly controversial to say anything that I've said thus far. I'm not the first person to say uh, this, that the Bible is not a rule book. It's mostly a story. Uh, but people draw differing conclusions from this insight. Some people conclude that it means that rules are useless for moral discernment or making moral appeals. Uh, my mentor during my master's program came dangerously close to saying this. He often said that there were no rules that he, he, he could offer up that would be applicable across different times and circumstances uh, for living the Christian life. When he was pressed by a colleague, he finally said, okay, there might be one rule that's universally applicable. Never stick a fire hose up someone's ass and turn it on. I think we can probably say more than that. Uh, I think there are probably rules that we can come up with that, will be, that are enduring. Uh, rape and torture seem to be uh, practices. Uh, amongst a whole other host of practices that we can just universally prohibit. We can, we can say, don't do those. Don't do that ever. Um, I think we can make those rules. Uh, and I think that we should live by those rules. But what I think the insight that the Bible is a story and not a rule book helps us to see is that good rules, the, the rules that are enduring and the ones that we'll want to continue to follow, those rules are rooted in our story. 
bad rules or highly contextual rules, well, those are the ones that we really can't find roots for in the story. They don't. They just don't fit. Uh, bad rules don't fit in the story particularly well. And oddly enough, or interestingly enough, perhaps, I, I think this insight will probably help us with that portion of the Bible that Christians oftentimes find the most difficult. And it's also the one that looks to us the most like a rule book, interestingly enough, it, the Torah. Um, I know that many individuals who have been readers of the Torah have identified it as essentially a rule book. Uh, it, it looks like one. You know, it, it contains a, an expansive list of admonitions that are written in do this and don't do this format. That's generally how rules look. Um, and yet, I'm going to make a claim here that will probably seem confusing at first. Uh, the claim is this. The Torah is not a rule book. It, it may look like one, but it is certainly not. Or at the very least, we can say that it is not like the rule books that we use. I'm not the only Christian or Jewish scholar to think this way, just to let you know. This is not an idiosyncratic view. Um, I have a friend who is an Old Testament scholar. His name is Paul Chizik, who's currently working on a book that categorizes the numerous functions played by the things that look to us like rules in the Torah. Um, some of them aren't rules and have never functioned as rules. Um, in fact, for this very reason, there are Torah scholars out there that really don't like uh, translating Torah as the law. You may have heard this, uh, you know, the law of Moses, for example, um, or just translating the Torah as the law. Um, some scholars don't like this because it can mislead readers about how to approach its contents. Um, we tend to think law means rules, right? Um, so these scholars uh, will oftentimes prefer to translate Torah as the teaching or the way, um, because those are perfectly valid uh, translations of the word Torah. Um, and in fact, I'm going to be referring to individual sayings that appear in the Torah, not as laws, but as teachings in what follows um, because of that. All right, so what... What am I, when I mentioned earlier that there are things that look like laws in the Torah that were never actually meant to be put into practice. What am I talking about when I say that? Um, we all know that modern Gentile Christians don't follow the whole Torah. Um, am, am I talking about that? Because you know, there's a whole section of the, the New Testament that talks about that very thing, right? Jews may abstain from pork and shellfish, but that isn't required for Gentiles. Uh, Jews may circumcise their children, but that isn't required for Gentiles. So Gentile Christians are used to encountering things in the Torah and responding with, yes, but that isn't binding on us. Is that what I'm talking about here? That is not what I'm talking about here. Um, that's a whole separate uh, issue. What I'm talking about is that there's a whole class of sayings in the Torah, a whole class of teachings in the Torah that were never taken as prescriptive. No one ever thought that they should be put into practice. Um, and the fact that they were never put into practice bothered absolutely no one except for Old Testament scholars that have noticed this. Um, in other words, they were never practiced by Jews. They were never practiced by Christians. They were never practiced by ancient Israelites. They were never practiced by Samaritans. They were never practiced by anyone ancient or modern who has taken the Bible as sacred scripture. And that bothered them not a whit they still considered what they were reading to be inspired by God. 
Here's my favorite example of such a teaching, one that was never taken as prescriptive. It looks like a rule, but nobody ever put it into practice, and that bothered absolutely no one. Leviticus 19.19. Leviticus 19.19 says, do not mate two different kinds of animal. If you Now, that looks like a rule. Do not mate two different kinds of animal. Uh, if you read this prescriptively, what it looks like is a ban on crossbreeding animals. Right. If this is a rule and it's meant to be put into practice, you don't take an animal of one species and breed it with an animal of another species and come up with a with a, a third thing. Right. And yet at every point in Israel's history, the Israelites owned and bred mules. That is a incontrovertible historical fact. And no one ever thought that this breeding and ownership of mules was a violation of the Torah, despite the fact that it, it is exactly that. You have to mate uh, a horse and a donkey together in order to produce a mule. Um, and that's weird, because if this is a prescriptive law, if this is a rule, do not mate two different kinds of animal, there is nothing else that it could possibly prohibit. Um, it's not as though the ancient Israelites were tempted to breed ligers. There is no other crossbreed than the mule that this saying could ever possibly apply to. So it's not the case that the mule is an exception to this rule either. You can do that, right? You can say, well, this rule generally applies, but the mule is an exception to it. In this particular case, either it prohibits mules or it doesn't function to regulate human behavior, right? Because this is the only case in which it could apply. So what is that what is that that teaching doing? Well, it's got to be doing something else other than making a rule-based appeal to its readers. Um, you may be relieved to find out that many of the capital punishment statutes that really bother readers of the Torah actually fall into this category as well. Um, they were also not meant to be put into practice. Um, they are not prescriptive. Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21 is perhaps the most famous example here. Uh, Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21 uh, calls for uh, the execution of a stubborn and rebellious son who is both a glutton and a drunkard. If you have a stubborn and rebellious son who is both a glutton and a drunkard, you take him out in front of the assembly and have him stoned. That's what it says. Now, if putting your own son to death for dissolute living sounds barbaric to us as modern readers... Rest assured that it also seemed that way. It seemed barbaric to ancient readers as well. Uh, it probably seemed barbaric to Jesus. I mean, if you think about what he says in the parable of the prodigal son, um, nobody in the parable, parable of the prodigal son suggests to the father in that parable that Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21 should be applied to the prodigal son himself. right? So it doesn't seem like Jesus is operating in a context where it's common to think that we should be actually executing uh, sons for engaging in gluttony and drunkenness. Um, here's what the rabbis of the Talmud said about this passage, another grouping of ancient uh, Jews. Um, there never has been a stubborn and rebellious son, and there never will be one in the future, as it is impossible to fulfill all the requirements that must be met in order to apply this halakha, that is, this teaching. So the rabbis didn't think that Deuteronomy 21, uh, 18 through 21 should be put into practice either, right? Uh, and that no Jew uh, in the past, uh, in the present, or in the future would ever, should ever take it so. 
Uh, in the very next sentence, the Talmud goes on to ask, and why then was the passage relating to a stubborn and rebellious son written in the Torah? That's a cogent question. Why would God, you know, if this is a law, uh, why would God give a law that's impossible to apply, right? It, why would it be in there if it wasn't meant to be put into practice? The Talmud answers, so that you may expound upon new understandings of the Torah and receive a reward for your learning, this being an aspect of the Torah that has only theoretical value. So you, you, there it is, right? You have a group of ancient Jews saying this teaching is only theoretical. It was never meant to be put into practice. Um, the teaching is given not to be put into practice, but to push the student of the Torah so that they become better at legal theory. In other words, the Torah is not always prescribing behavior when it gives you something that looks like a rule. Um, sometimes it's doing something else. Sometimes it's trying to teach you legal theory. Sometimes it's puzzling through a conundrum. Sometimes it's offering a description. And sometimes it's just expressing disapproval or even rage. Um, all of those seem to be things that the Torah is doing when it gives you something that look like a rule, even though we don't do those things with things that look like rules. I can't make the full case here, but in fact, all of the capital punishment sayings in the Torah seem to be performing that last function that I mentioned. They're not meant to be put into practice. They're only e expressing disapproval or even rage. Uh, they're merely expressing disapproval at the, the kind of practice that they're asking for an individual to be executed for. Um, they're not actually calling for punishing people by killing them, gouging out their eyes, or knocking out their tooth, right? That's... Um, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Many individuals say, oh, that's our, when they read that, they say that's barbaric. Um, you know, what it's calling for is, you know, if you knock out somebody's tooth, you have to have your own tooth knocked out. If you gouge out somebody's eye, you have to have your own eye gouged out. Um, that's not a rule that is actually put into practice um, in ancient Israel. Uh, and you can see that by noticing that when the Torah does address cases where one person knocks out the tooth of another in the actual in, when it considers actual cases, um, the Torah prescribes monetary restitution or its equivalent as punishment, not actually knocking out the offender's tooth in return, right? If you want to see an example of that, uh, look at Exodus 21, 23 through 24, where it, it states, you know, eye for eye, tooth for uh, tooth, for tooth, life for life, uh, bruise for bruise, wound for wound, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But then when it actually considers a case where one guy knocks out another guy's tooth, it says, well, the, the guy who knocked out the tooth has to pay restitution. It doesn't call for his tooth to be knocked out in return. So it's kind of an interesting thing about the capital punishment. Many of the capital punishment statutes, the Torah, they actually fall into this category of things that look like rules, but were not actually meant to be put into practice in the way that they look. They're statements of legal theory instead. Um, at this point, I'm sure that some folks listening are going to think, well... That's really confusing. Um, you know, does anything in the Torah actually apply to us as modern readers? You know, are there any things that actually are rules uh, that were meant to be put into practice? And if, if there are, if they're there, if they're amongst these other, these other things that look like rules but are doing something else, how do we tell the difference? Um, which, those are good questions. I, I think there are, I definitely think there are teachings in the Torah that are meant to be put into practice and deeply call out how American society is structured. Um, an excellent example of this 
is Leviticus 19.33 through 34 and its parallels. Um, if you've ever gone to an immigration protest, you are familiar with this, or an immigrants' rights protest, you are familiar with this passage, most likely. When it's it's uh, Leviticus 19.33 through 34 is this. When an immigrant resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The immigrant residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you are immigrants in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Note that this is this this teaching is from the exact same chapter as, of Leviticus as the don't crossbreed animals teaching I referenced earlier. Uh, this teaching deeply challenges the nativist politics that run so deep in America, including our militarized southern border and our policies of family separation. Likewise, Deuteronomy 24, 14 through 15 is another teaching where the Torah issues a deep challenge to our way, to life, way of life and is something I think that was meant to be put into practice. Deuteronomy 24, 14 through 15 is this. You shall not withhold the wages of poor and needy laborers, whether they are other Israelites or immigrants who reside in your land in one of your towns. You shall pay them their wages daily before sunset because they are poor and their livelihoods depend on them, that the them is the wages. Um, otherwise, they, the laborers, might cry out to the Lord against you and you would incur guilt. This teaching is the basis of the biblical prohibition on wage theft, which is an economic practice that is so common in the United States that every year the damages that are incurred by wage theft outstrip all other forms of property theft combined. So the damages done by wage theft in the United States every year outstrip the damages done by grand theft auto, by shoplifting, by every other form of property theft. Wage theft occurs when an employer withholds all or part of a worker's wages. Uh, this can be done in many ways, from forcing a worker to work unpaid overtime to simply withholding a paycheck after the worker has performed labor for you. In traditional Christian and Jewish economic ethics, this is um, basically the worst form of theft. Uh, and despite the fact that wage theft is endemic in the United States, uh, there are few to no mechanisms for investigating, identifying, and intervening in situations of wage theft when it occurs. Law enforcement agencies largely ignore it, even as they focus on other forms of property crime. Um, likewise, another teaching I think that, that is prescriptive and, and challenges us deeply, um, there is Deuteronomy 15 and Leviticus 25, which is the Sabbath year and the Jubilee year, uh, respectively. In the Sabbath year, which was supposed to happen every seven years, all captives are released and all debts are forgiven. In the Jubilee year, which was supposed to happen every 49 years, every seven Sabbaths, every seven sets of seven years, um, the provisions of the Sabbath year are supposed to occur, so release all captives, forgive all debts, um, with the addition of a massive redistribution of land and wealth. These teachings are, are, are still, you know, the Jubilee year ones, if you've ever attended uh, debt relief or debt forgiveness uh, protests or funds or things like that, are still used very much as a, a, a sort of text of resistance. These teachings are much-needed texts of resistance in a society defined by mass incarceration, crushing debt, and severe wealth inequality. So how do we tell the difference between the, the teachings in the Torah 
that are prescriptive and the ones that aren't. Um, how do we differentiate between the teachings within the Torah that are normative and those that are just theoretical? Well, as I said earlier, we have to pay attention to the story. What role do those teachings have in the ongoing biblical story? How do they get picked up and utilized by the prophets or by Jesus or by the apostles? And as it turns out, if you apply that standard to the teachings of the Torah, what you'll find is this. The teachings against wage theft, the teachings on treating immigrants no differently than citizens, the teachings on debt forgiveness, the teachings on releasing captives, and the teachings on redistributing wealth are all central to the ministries of the prophets, the ministry of Jesus, and the ministries of the apostles. Jeremiah, Amos, Isaiah, Zechariah, and Jesus all pronounce judgment on those who practice wage theft, who oppress immigrants, who hoard wealth, and refuse to set free those in captivity. In fact, the, the scripture reading for today, Matthew 25, when Jesus says, you know, those among the goats are those that don't welcome the stranger, he's talking about oppressing immigrants there, among other things. But So you can see very clearly Jesus using this idea in his own ministry. Um. Those teachings uh, that I mentioned, the ones against wage theft, against oppressing immigrants, against hoarding wealth, against um, holding people in captivity, those teachings are rooted in the Exodus story, and they have an ongoing role to play in Israel and the church's story. Um, on the flip side, it's important to pay attention to what the prophets, Jesus, and the apostles don't condemn, what they don't pick up and use in their ministries. None of them condemn Israel for breeding mules. None of them pronounce judgment on Israel for failing to execute sons for drunkenness. None of them are also, there are no Pat Robertsons among them. None of them pronounces judgment on Israel for Israelites having same-sex sexual relations. Um, the teachings in the Torah dealing with those things only occur once. Uh, they aren't rooted in the story of Israel that's come prior to the Torah, and they don't have an ongoing role in Israel or the church's story after that. They show up once and are largely forgotten about. When that happens in the, in, in the Torah, it's a clear sign that the teaching is either theoretical or descriptive rather than prescriptive. Um, when it comes to treating the Bible as our foundation, it turns out again that story is more foundational than rule. In order to figure out which of these apply, these teachings apply as rules, you have to pay attention to the to the story, uh, and you have to see if those rules have a story beyond their presentation in the Torah. Now, I do have to admit, sometimes it isn't as simple as I've said here. There are times when the story itself goes off the rails and needs to be interrogated. And I'm sure we're familiar with instances like this. The most commonly cited examples are the conquest narrative and the flood narrative. All right, the conquest of Israel and the, the God's actions in the flood. But in both of those cases... Knowing the overall arc of the biblical story is helpful. There's the little stories that, that are present within the books of the Bible, and then there, there, there is the overarching story um, of salvation history in the Bible. Um, and if you know the big story, if you know the overall arc, um, you'll find that the conquest narrative actually doesn't fit within the overall arc of Israel and the church's story. Um, 
Judges, the second half of Joshua and first and second Samuel actually give us reason to think that the Israelites arrived in the land relatively peacefully and intersettled amongst their Canaanite neighbors rather than wiping them out. We kind of talked about this during summer Bible study. Uh, the case is too long for me to make here. Um, but that, that picture that they peacefully intersettled fits within the broader narrative better. Uh, and the, the flood story actually tells its readers that wiping out 99% of humanity would be a completely ineffective way to deal with human sin. It reads much more like a hypothetical situation than an actual story. Um, but making the case for both of those readings that I just made, we'll have to wait for a different time. They're more involved than I have time left here. Um, but hopefully what I've said here will help you approach the Torah with greater appreciation for how to tell which of its teachings require a prescriptive reading and which require an imaginative, a theoretical, or an analogical reading. You know, you pay attention to the story. Um, and hopefully what I've said will help you to think about what it means that the Bible is primarily a story rather than a rule book. And it's a good thing that the Bible is, is a story rather than a rule book. Our lives display his name. Oh Lord, you always. 
What questions or thoughts does the sermon bring up for you? What questions do you have about the Anabaptism at 500 project? If you are with someone else, you can have a time of discussion after our service ends or pause the audio and do it right now. Or send your thoughts via email to the church or to a member of worship team to pass along. The rest of our services in this series will incorporate time for listening to each other and discussing what we have heard, and we look forward to sharing that together. Now, hear this blessing as we depart. God of power, may the boldness of your Spirit transform us. May the gentleness of your Spirit lead us. May the gifts of your Spirit be our goal and our strength, now and always. Amen. Go in peace.